Hello, beautiful souls. Welcome to the Angels and Awakening podcast. I'm your host, Julie Jancis. Friends, just a reminder, we are praying for the world. On October 15th, 22nd, and November 3rd, we are coming together in the evening for an hour to spend time together praying, visualizing, raising the vibration for the planet. Friends, if you would like to be a part of this, just hop on over to my website, theangelmedium.com, and make sure that you are signed up for our emails. Right at the top of the website, it asks you to sign up, and if you sign up there, you'll receive an email with a link and passcode to join these free events. Friends, we also have emergency sessions available. If you want to get in one-on-one, you can reach out to the office. You can also sign up for the High Vibration eCourse, the Angel Communication eCourse, or the Angel Reiki School. We are offering all of those right now. And all of the details are on the website and in the show notes. All right, friends, let's see what our angels have for us to learn today. Hello, beautiful souls. Welcome back to the show. I am here with author Philip Goldberg. He has been studying the world's spiritual traditions for more than 50 years as a practitioner, teacher, and writer. An interfaith minister, public speaker, and author, his numerous books include award-winning American Veda from Emerson and the Beatles to Yoga and Meditation, How Indian Spirituality Changed the West, The Life of Yogananda, The Story of the Yogi Who Became the First Modern Guru, and his latest, Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. Powerful Tools to Cultivate Clarity, Calm, and Courage. He blogs on Elephant Journal and Spirituality and Health, co-hosts the popular Spirit Matters podcast, and leads American Veda Tours to India. Welcome to the show, Philip. It's great to be with you, Julie. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk first about your most recent book. Uh, That is Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. Teach us what you know about cultivating that clarity, calm, and courage. Well, there's uh, 200 pages that do the teaching, but I'll uh, give you a summary. I I keep being complimented for having great timing because things get crazier by the day. In truth, I wrote the book last year and conceived of it when I thought, you know, things were already crazy and people were in high states of fear and anxiety and anger. And I knew things would get worse because of the election, but the pandemic was not on anybody's radar. And the uh, eruptions around Black Lives Matter was not on anybody's radar. So the book, when it came out, unfortunately, was well-timed. But I wrote it because I I believe that what we think of as spiritual practices, the methods and techniques that have come to us from the mystical traditions of all all over the world over the uh, centuries, are extremely practical, timeless, and applicable to our lives, especially in, when times are tough. And, and I found that people didn't fully appreciate that and th- were thinking of spiritual practices as kind of luxuries. You know, things they'll get around to when they have time or things they might do, you know, uh, as, as adjuncts to daily life. Whereas I've always considered them ever since I came upon them in my, in my own search, especially the deep inward practices like meditation, as necessary investments of time for, for ongoing maintenance, for raising us to higher levels of experience. So they've been part of my life, part of my daily life, like brushing my teeth and taking showers and, you know, eating properly and all the things we do to maintain well-being, uh, spiritual practices are, are part of that. 
And, and it's important, I think, for everybody to have an inventory, a repertoire to call on. So that's why I wrote the book, to, to give people, to convince people that the spiritual is practical and to help them carve out the proper time and have a, an inventory of practices to draw on. And the, I, I will add one other thing. They, people uh, often think of spiritual practice or spirituality in general as ways to escape the world. I mean, you can use them as escape mechanisms, just like you can use television or, you know, social media as, as a way of escaping the world, you know, for, for, for short periods of time, that's valuable. You want to take refuge and get away from things, but that's temporary. That's to recharge your batteries. That's to elevate your soul. And then you come back into the world. You're, you're a family member. You're part of a community. You're a professional. You have a job. You're a citizen. Why not be at your best when you take on those responsibilities? The point I make in the book is that we have within us, deep inside, at our, our core, our essence, a sanctuary, a natural sanctuary of peace. And we can access that sanctuary, take refuge there, find protection in that space. But that space is also a fortress of strength and a platform from which to spring back out into the world and do whatever you do with more clarity of mind, more inner strength, more inner peace and stability, and more compassion. And so that's the core of what I try to accomplish in the book. I love that. Well, and let's dive into this a little deeper because I think that one of the questions that since I started the podcast a year and a half ago that we've been trying to answer and we re have answered it is that there are some spiritual teachers who will tell their students that the core essence, the mission of what we're trying to do here is get into bliss, enlightenment, high vibration, and stay there 24-7. And, and yet the message really needs to be, we do have to come back into our lives. We have to be here now. We have to be present. And how do we utilize spiritual practices in a way that, like to your point, that we are our best in these rules that we have here on earth. Yes. And I don't necessarily think there's uh, those two messages are incompatible. If you look at the models of highest spiritual development, and most of the, the really good models come from uh, the, the traditions that were born in India, what we think of as Hinduism, Buddhism, but the, 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 the traditions around yoga, the models include both remaining in that state, or I should say, instead of remaining in that state, cultivating that state so it becomes gradually more and more permanent. So the bliss, the enlightened awareness, the fullness of mind and soul and body that is defined you know, and called various names, enlightenment, realization, awakening, and so forth. Those can be permanent states. But as long as we're embodied, <laughs> we also are part of the world. And we have to, as the Zen Buddhists say, we have to chop wood and carry water. Before enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. But the, the chopping and the carrying take on a different quality at their various stages along the way as we evolve. And as long as we have to be part of the world, as long as we are, as I said, members of the family and a community and citizens, we have to make decisions and we have to take actions. Those enlightened states don't conflict with effective action in the world, 
they should enhance it. They should make it better. And if you want evidence of that, look at the history of, of spirituality in all cultures. The saints and the prophets and the enlightened beings, the jiva muktis, who we admire, were also active in the world. That's why we know about them. They wrote books. They taught. They, tr they did things to enlighten the world. They did service to the poor and the, the hungry and, and the unfortunate. They elevated us. And some of them engaged in political action. I'm not saying Gandhi was a necessarily enlightened being or that Martin Luther King was an enlightened being. These were deeply spiritual souls who also acted in the world. Jesus acted in the world. He didn't just take a few followers, you know, and sit in the woods. Neither did Buddha. Buddha was active in the world, teaching, enlightening others. And some people... As far as I'm concerned, there are saints working in the hospitals right now, helping COVID patients. And, you know, just deep spirituality is not incompatible with our duties and responsibilities in the world. Now, of course, there are always going to be, and there should be, monastics and recluses, renunciates who live in caves and live simple lives in ashrams. But when they're out, you know, doing whatever they do, they also help others. And so, you know, however modest our actions are, and however disengaged or engaged it is right for us, enlightenment is not an obstacle to uh, citizenship, or is it uh, incompatible with it? Sure, sure. So I got a lot of questions here. What do you feel is the purpose of those who are highly spiritual beings who stay reclusive? On some level, you know, you can buy this or not, but the, the awakened beings who, and I've met them, I've met, you know, I go to India, I've met, you know, sannyasis and sadhus who, you know, are very reclusive. They live either among themselves in little ashrams, some are totally isolated in caves and come out to get food once in a while or, you know, whatever they require. On some level, they are upholding the vibration of the planet. Maybe more. <laughs> There's one story of a, of a legendary uh, cave-dwelling yogi in India. And I, I, I was not at this there for this moment, but uh, friends of mine were. And they asked him if he slept. And he said, if I were to sleep, what would happen to the world? <laughs> so on some level, he was making a contribution just being there and projecting the purity of his vibration out in the world. But others do more. Others train other people. They have students. Others, you know, in ashrams and monasteries, you know, will do service for the poor. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever it is, you know, we have a whole tradition of monks and nuns mm -hmm. who do service and a very important service. They work in hospitals. They feed the, the hungry. They do things. And so, it, you know, there's a great variation and we should honor those people. But very few are cut out for that monastic way of life. Mm -hmm. And we can emulate them in their compassion and their goodness and their sense of service and, you know, seek to attain whatever, you know, inner status they have. But our way of life, you know, for 90 whatever percent of us, you know, is more in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, we have children who walk in when we're doing interviews and, we yeah. have to feed them and we have, you know, yeah. we have, yeah. we have duties and responsibilities and that's, you know, part of the human experience. Sure. So what does it look like? Let's talk about those who do take action, spiritual people who are taking action. What does that look like? Because, you know, in 2020, a lot of times there has been, I'm very tapped into the frequencies and the vibrations that I'm carrying at all times. And 
you know, when we went into March of 2020, I mean, there was a lot of fear, you know, what's going to happen? How bad is this going to be? You know, going into seeing, you know, this summer, Black Lives Matter and just how much I did not know and seeing myself in a different way for the first time and really questioning myself all of the politics that we're in right now. And there are different vibrations that radiate through us. And these can be very strong vibrations that want us to attach to them and believe in, you know, those vibrations that are creating thoughts within us. So what does it look like to be spiritual and take action? There's a lot to unpack there. I'll answer your the last question first. From what I have experienced and what I have found in my research, and I will add that my research was is not just on the world's spiritual traditions, which is you know a, a vast enterprise in itself, but in the book I tried to also bring in whatever I could uh, from science. Because a, a lot of uh, what we think of as spirituality has been studied by brain scientists, physiologists, psychologists over the last 40, 50 years. And so a lot of the methods, meditation, mindfulness, prayer, the yogic methods of breathing and so forth, these have been studied and their effectiveness chronicled and and uh, demonstrated in peer-reviewed scientific journals and so forth. And so I tried to bring the evidence in, because to me, the spiritual practices are pragmatic, and where there's evidence, we should favor the evidence. From what I can tell, spiritual practice seems very clearly to cultivate certain, help us cultivate certain traits that we consider desirable. So the inner peace we get, the sense of well-being, the clarity of mind, and so forth, the, the, the openness of awareness, these have been demonstrated. Being able to remain stable and maintain some level of inner peace in the midst of activity and chaos and upheavals and stress, that has also been chronicled. And that goes back thousands of years to verses in the Bhagavad Gita and others, you know, that first appealed to me when I became a seeker. Now they're verified by science. But the other thing is, people who have regular deep spiritual practices rise up in the level of compassion, the capacity to love, the capacity for empathy, the the impulse to serve, to be of help to other people, because your well-being is being cultivated from within. And so you're less likely to be needy, less likely to be greedy, less likely to be selfish, less likely to be narrow-minded. These are qualities we need from people. And so that's why, you know, I when I wrote Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times, you know, there's nine chapters, and eight of them is essentially, you know, here's practices for you to cultivate at different times, different circumstances, and so forth. And the last chapter is called Spiritual Citizenship. That where I emphasize, okay, you you you've cultivating your inner life. You're also a citizen. Do good in the world. And the irony is, being of service and helping others helps us. There's a lot of research that even small acts of kindness, small acts of unselfishness in the service of others, is good for us. Good for our well-being. That's my take. At the same time, you also brought up the potential to be vulnerable to uh, negative thoughts and vibrations and, and social media memes. And that, that's a real phenomenon. And it's 
it's dangerous. At the same time, I think that the spiritual practice should give you some more clarity of mind and on a subtle level, protection from negative vibrations. But there is also the possibility of being open to them more than you might have been. So we have to be very attentive and we have to be discerning. There's nothing about the spiritual path that is counter to using our intelligence and, and looking for evidence and examining things. Discernment, what in the yogis call viveka, is a, a critical aspect of being a spiritual being in the world. We have to think clearly, even while we open up to our intuition and our inner feelings and our connectedness. You know, the creation has granted us both. <laughs> you know, and we should we should use our minds and 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 be be careful about yeah. what we expose our to ourselves to. So, for a person who is new to doing this work and new to spiritual practice, and with everything coming up with the election, what tools could you get them if they are triggered by the politics now to kind of cease that vibration within them? I'm going to first say uh, an anecdote that's in the book. I was in, in last time I was in India. I heard this story. It, there's a there was a famous guru, not famous, but uh, a, a revered guru in a certain part of India, and he was giving a gathering. He was addressing a large group, and there was something going on in in that region that was very troubling to the people. And they said, "Master, you know what should we do about this?" And they expected a you know a big esoteric explanation, and he gave them a one-word answer, and the answer was vote. So one thing we can do is pay attention to what's going on, vote, help other people vote. But on the other hand, there's never been more <clears throat> misinformation and more sophisticated attempts to manipulate our minds and what we believe and what we think is true. That's so true. I just watched The Social Dilemma. Have you Thank seen you. that? Yes, I was going to recommend it in my next sentence. Oh, wow. The Social Dilemma, if you have not seen it, what it shows is that let's say that you are in Texas and I am in Illinois. What If I go in and Google a phrase, it is going to show you different results if you are in, let's say, a Republican area versus if you are in a Democratic area or just based on the part of the United States that you are in, it's going to show different results. So as we... Uh, excuse me, I want to add yeah, that it yeah. will show different results depending on your prior searches and and your clicks. So it's feeding you more of what you want to know. And a lot of what is happening right now is, you know, people have very strong opinions and one side is looking at the other side saying, how could they possibly think this way? And the other side is looking at, you know, the other, the opposite side saying, how could you think that way? That it's crazy. But it, it's the thought is coming from these search and re engine results on everything that you are searching. Right. So what people don't realize is that that person who thinks in ways that you can't comprehend is not getting the same information you are. You're right. in, we're, we literally are in two different information universes, not just two, actually, many of them. So you might be, you know, persuaded by some uh, mainstream source that's reasonably well-informed but has a different conclusion. But then there's all the lies and misinformation and potentially dangerous memes that are being spread because, for example, you're concerned about the real problem of child trafficking, for example, which is a real problem in the world. But if you go down the rabbit hole pretty far, you come to conspiracy theories where prominent Democrats and Hollywood celebrities are in a cabal kidnapping and molesting children and drinking their blood. And there you go. Yeah. 
Well, and it, it, one of the examples that they used in this movie, The Social Dilemma, is on Netflix right now. One of the examples that they give is the NBA star who said a couple of years back, I believe the earth is flat. And he said that, and he ended up realizing that why he believed that was he was at home one day flipping through YouTube videos. And when he watched one video that said the earth is flat, then YouTube takes what he wants to know and gives him more of the same revolt results. So he ended up watching video after video after video after video proclaiming that the earth is flat and ended up stating that. And I think this is really fascinating because I'm 38 years old. I was born in 1982 and I was involved in journalism a lot. And one of the things that I think most of us who are probably, you know, 35 or older have this foundation within us that news is truth, right? And that whatever we're watching is truth. And that's not true anymore. Yes. And I'm a lot older. And I go back to, you know, days when there were only three networks Mm -hmm. and you could trust Walter Cronkite and, you know, the others because they do real journalism. They don't always get it right, but they have an ethical code of journalism. And now our sources of information still include that. So my inclination is always to go to the places where the trained journalists or the scientists congregate because they are evidence-based and they have a certain ethical code of uh, how to gather evidence and present them. And if they're wrong, they'll correct themselves. But now there have always been propagandists, people who spread lies or crazy, you know, conspiracy theories or whatever. They've always been there, but they communicated with pamphlets or mailings or, you know, other ways of you know, reaching people or, you know, and reaching only a few people. Now, those lies, those, you know, really false news is fake news is being propagated by very sophisticated people who know how to reach others. And as the Nazis used to say, if you tell a lie often enough, it will be believed. And and so we have to really be uh, discerning. And there's nothing about spiritual practice. There's nothing about being a spiritual person that is in any way contradictory to using our intellect and to and gathering information and being dis- discerning and discriminating. Part of the spiritual path is being open to explanations that are beyond reason and beyond logic and beyond uh, anything we can count or you know perceive with our senses. That's the very nature of spirituality. But when it comes to worldly information, you know, we have to be careful with how we evaluate things. We have to be, you know, as objective and scientific in our approach as we can. And every spiritual teacher worth their salt will also proclaim the same, the same thing. Friends, just a little side note here. I am so excited to announce that we are launching three free live events coming up October 15th, October 22nd, and November 3rd. Now, friends, this is not about politics whatsoever, but those first two dates are on the nights of presidential debates, and that third event is the night of the election. Why are we having these live free events? Just to lift you up in prayer, to come together as a community. Because remember, when we come together and direct our intent to raise the vibe within humanity, ourselves, our communities, our families, my goodness, the other side takes that energy and you can feel it so much more profoundly. So again, not about politics whatsoever, just about helping you keep your energy clear, help you lift your vibration, not just for yourself, but for everyone around you within our communities and the world. 
So I really hope that you will take part in these live events with me. If you want to be a part of this, please hop on over to my website and make sure we have your email address. Go to theangelmedium.com. That's theangelmedium.com. And where it says, want weekly angel messages for free, put in your name and email address. That way we can send you a free link to the event with a passcode you can use to get in. Friends, thank you for being Earth Angels here, for joining us at these events and really helping us raise, shift, and lift the vibration here on Earth. Now let's get back to the show. So you have a a book on India's impact on Western culture. And I'm wondering, you know, what has the West not gotten yet about (laughs) India's culture? And, and, you know, we're taking bits and pieces, but are we cherry picking in a way where we haven't gotten the full message? Oh, very good question. And we have, ever since the late 18th century, been gaining the benefits of the ancient wisdom that was born in India that gave us what we think of as Hinduism and Buddhism and the others. But essentially, these core insights of the ancient seers that that have given us all the methods and approaches to human development we think of as yoga and the perspective of Indian philosophy, principally the philosophy of Vedanta. That's in the in the great texts of India. And they've been coming to the West for over two centuries now. And, and the history of that is what I chronicled in uh, American Veda. And, it, and it, it became more and more influential over time as we get more and more access, thanks to technology and transportation. And then these the emissaries from India who came here and taught in the West, people like Yogananda, whose biography I taught, people like later Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, with whom I studied, and all the gurus who came. And so we have imbibed Indian wisdom, and many, many people have incorporated the teachings into their lives. They've affected medicine and psychology and the spiritual landscape of America. They've they've uh, affected and influenced uh, Christians and Jews and Muslims in very important ways. So the impact has been great, and it grows because these are practical teachings that can can be applied and adapted to different ways of life. We have yet to penetrate the full depths of it because but then again you know not everybody in india does either you know because you know these are deep and rich bodies of uh teachings even with my deep engagement in them i'm i discover new things all the time something new is translated some new area of indian philosophy i never heard of comes my way and so there's still a great deal to learn the main my main concern about it is that yoga is it has become so popular the physical practices of yoga have become so popular that people think of it only as a uh, a health practice or a fitness practice when you know the the full spiritual mental and physical dimensions of yoga get ignored or distorted and diluted. But I think, you know, over time, we'll get it right. And and I think, personally, the reason I wrote American Veda was that I think our absorption and application of the these great teachings from India into our way of life is, is a tremendously important development in our own history, certainly our our spiritual history. And there's still much to be learned from them. That's beautiful. So recently, uh, I created a, a course that people can take any time. It's called 
how to get into and hold high vibration. And in this course, we were talking about yoga as a way that, you know, people don't realize that really the purpose of yoga originally, right, was to move the body in certain ways that would help the body get into a point that it was ready for that high vibration enlightenment. Talk more about that and talk more about the parts of yoga that people really don't get. Well, actually, I, I go in, I use this perspective a lot in spiritual practice for crazy times. I talk about early in the book, I, I, I recommend having a regular meditative practice. And I talk about the different kinds of practices and I give instructions and all that. Then I talk about things that are good to do before and after meditation. And that's where the physical aspect of yoga become one of the more, you know, things I wrote about. And, then I, you know, I'm just bringing out here things that have been known for thousands of years. So the physical practices, the postures, the stretching and bending that we think of as yoga or called asanas have were a Yes, they have benefits in and of themselves for health and well-being and fitness and so forth. That's always been known. They were part of Indian medicine as well, traditional Indian medicine. But they were primarily used in a spiritual context to uh, prepare the, the body to, you know, bring its inner, as you would say, frequency, but, it, you know, the inner condition of the nervous system, of the muscles and tendons, into a place where sitting could be sustained. So the typical sequence was to do some of these physical postures, asanas, and then some of the breathing practices that are called pranayamas, and there's hundreds and hundreds of variations of those. And then, having now prepared the body, and started to settle the mind, sit in meditation. So they were all preparation for meditation. What people don't often realize is that meditation practice is you know, the core of yoga. You know, if you read the, the traditional yogic texts, they speak mainly of taking the attention within in methods of meditation to open up the consciousness to the state of unity. That is the definition of yoga. So meditation is, you know, central yogic practice, as are the other supplementary practices. And, and that's, you know, something that people need to be reminded of at all times. And I thank you for bringing it up. But that's essentially the, the sequence was always you do some something physical, you do something with the breath, you then do a mental practice of meditation. You might follow that with chanting or prayer or other spiritual practices. You might do some of that even before meditation. There's a million varieties, but going deep within into the inner sanctuary of silence and peace is the whole essence <laughs> of the tradition. That's awesome. I'm wondering if you've if you've studied this at all or if you've seen any of this in your studies, but when I'm working with students, some people are able to get into that state just by, you know, sitting and just by, you know, quieting the mind. Some people really do need movement. And I've talked to um, one of my girlfriends is um, a personal trainer. And she, you know, can go for a 10-minute just gentle walk. And she says that that helps her get into a state that's ready to meditate. Why is it that some human bodies need that physical movement before they get into that state of consciousness and some don't? I don't know if I can answer the why question, but your observation is right on. And I would add to it, there are times when any of us might benefit from doing something physical before meditative state of mind. I've been meditating for 52 years. I learned to, to do transcendental meditation in 1968. I became a teacher of it. 
I also do yoga practices and breathing before, but I don't always. I know, I know my body now. I know when I should do them. I, I feel a certain movement. I feel a certain agitation. I say, you know, I'm going to do some something physical, some breathing, some yoga, something. Take a walk around the block. What does that feel like within you? Like, what's that indication that makes you know? There's there's a certain mental and or physical disquiet, agitation. It might not be, you know, it's not like I'm, you know, nervous or crazy, but you can just sense it. And so if, for example, just even something like you had too much caffeine and now, you know, maybe you should burn off some of that before you sit to meditate. Mm. Even just gentle stretching and all that, or some vigorous breathing, or you know, a walk around the block. That matters. You're under a great deal of stress. You know, you haven't done any exercise that day. That will agitate the nervous system, and you're less likely to settle easily into meditation. So doing something physical. And there may be something to the fact that some people are just more prone. Uh, to physical activity and the need for it. And so they, on a regular basis, might know that that's, uh, that would be the case with them. Or just, you know, our habits, you know, caffeine, too much mental stimulation, not enough exercise. There's different ways that the things we do will affect our capacity or our receptivity to meditative practices. So tuning into that, yeah. is a very useful thing and saying, well, you know, before I meditate, I'm going to do some of this. I'm going to do some of that. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you. Okay. So I want to kind of take this a little bit deeper in because I feel like there are so many great gems, right, in your research with understanding the basis of, of spirituality and the history of spirituality within India. If you were going to sit down with your kids or your grandkids and say, here's the three things, you know, the three lessons that Americans don't get or, you know, Western culture doesn't get that, that India has worked out. What are like the three concepts that we really need to grasp? Okay. I will, uh, let's see if I can narrow it down to three, but first I will say, I don't like making vast generalizations because many people in the West have gotten that. And if you look at the history of uh, the uh, Christian mystical tradition, the Jewish mystical tradition, the great you know rabbis and prophets, the Christian saints, John the Divine, and you know Teresa of Avila, Thomas Merton, uh, more and more. If you look at the uh, tradition of Sufism within Islam, the mystical traditions, the mystics have always gotten it, you know, and the yogis just have codified it in a, in a more rigorous way and uh, kept these esoteric mystical traditions intact through the centuries. So many in the West do get it and have gotten it over the years. I would say that, one, we are divine beings. You know, there's a, something uh, in India, it's called Mahavakya, the great utterance. It's uh, the, the great phrases that are in the Upanishads that are the triggers to awakening our spirituality. And one of them is Tatvam Asi, which means that thou art. You are a divine being. The essence of the universe, the essence of what is, all that is sacred and divine and ultimate, the ultimate reality of the universe is also your inner nature. You are divine. Your purpose as a human being <laughs> embodied in form is to awaken to that inner divinity, that you are not just the personality known as Julie in that body, who's the mother of this child and has this body. You are one with all that is in your essence. 
And there are methods for attaining that awareness and that awakening that are practical and useful to do in life. And along the way, they'll make your human incarnation a lot more pleasant and a lot more uh, uh, effective and harmonious. Those, so the, that's my three, if we have to keep it to three. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love that. Well, and describe for me too, because I don't totally know the history on this. So when you were talking at the beginning about the Christian mystics, you know, the Jewish mystics, the mystics from around the world, was that mysticism, because there are different, I, I don't remember exactly what Teresa of Avila did, but I know, was it St. Thomas who really connected with the other side and brought through messages? Describe the mystics and, and what you, you mean by that well, and history of it. Yeah, there are, there are different mystics in every tradition. You know, we use the word mystic, you know, it's it's a kind of misunderstood term. I remember when I first, I read a book back in the 60s when I first started seeking. Someone said, oh, you should read this book. It was by a British teacher of a scholar from the, about 100 years ago or more, uh, named Evelyn Underhill. And she wrote a classic book on mysticism. And I said, why would I be interested in mysticism? And this person said, wait a minute, you've been reading the Bhagavad Gita and these books on Vedanta philosophy and yoga and Zen Buddhism, that's all mysticism. Oh, I said, I thought mysticism was weird stuff. No, there's a practical mysticism that is the, you know, the one good way to understand this, the, the religious scholar, Houston Smith, who wrote the forward to my uh, American Veda book before he passed, he said there are two aspects of religion. One is the exoteric, E-X-O-T-E-R-I-C, which is the outer stuff, the belief systems, the rituals, you know, congregational experiences, and so forth, the dogma. And then there's the esoteric, which is the inner experience that religions at their best should elicit in you, and the inner qualities that um, they bring out. Mysticism is focused on those esoteric traditions. So scholars will tell you that if you look at the mystical traditions, Kabbalah, Christian mysticism, Sufism, and of course, you know, the ones in the East, you will find they have they come from different belief systems. They come from different uh, sets of dogma, different views of history, different customs, different cultures. But when they describe their inner experiences, when they describe their connection to the larger universe, they sound very much the same. Because if you go deep enough, all those differences evaporate. And that's what you you come to the inner experience of your own divinity of your oneness with the world and all the mystics have found the same thing even though they may take different routes to get there so you know they have different practices but in the metaphor you know that they use in india there are many pathways up the mountain but when you get up to the top of the mountain you have the same view and, and, you know, some are slow and meandering, some are more direct, some are hazardous, some are smooth, but you get there, you have the same perspective. And, that, and that's how I understand the mystical view. Now, there are also mystics that are deeply immersed in what we think of as, as esoteric or occult experience, and they may have visitations, they may have the experience of communicating with departed souls or angels or deities. And you find them in every tradition too. And others are less interested in that than the transformation of, you know, the human being into an awakened soul. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. So even if you look at the gurus, and I've studied all the gurus who came here from the West, some of them are just not interested in miracles and visitations and otherworldly experiences and all that. They just want you to improve your life and you know gradually move toward an enlightened state. And some are more devotional. 
some are less devotional. And others, like Yogananda, was also interested in some of them, what we think of as miraculous experiences, mm -hmm. and will write and speak openly about their own uh, experiences with uh, people we think of as dead <laughs> coming yeah. to see them and, and all that. So. Oh, I like how you phrase that. People we think of as dead because they're not really, right? <laughs> right. If you accept, you know, the eternal nature of the soul, uh, you know, then they're somewhere else in different form. Mm -hmm. And every tradition has, you know, a, a model of, you know, different models of that. Even within Hinduism and Buddhism, you'll see different models of <laughs> what uh, those other disembodied realms are like. And, and some people are fascinated by that and want to know more about it and others less so. Beautiful. Philip, if people want to go buy your books, if they want to learn more about you, because I know that you lead tours over to India. Well, before, yes. Before COVID. We've had to put them on hold for now, but presumably we'll be doing tours again, yes. Yeah. Where can they find you online? My website is the first stop, philipgoldberg.com, philip with one L, goldberg.com. And so then there are you know, pages and links to my podcast, which is called Spirit Matters, where we have 200 and some odd interviews with uh, wonderful spiritual teachers. And uh, and that's free. That's you know my way, a bit of my service. And you know my writings and videos and all that are up there, and links to booksellers, so you can buy my book. And I will add that this sounds like a commercial, and in a sense it is, but it's also a service. Uh, when spiritual practice for crazy times, when the pandemic hit, uh, the book was in process you know you can't rush too fast the printing and all that the ebook for kindle and other platforms we brought that out early and priced it at a dollar 99 so we felt you know during this craziness uh, people would benefit from it and then when the paperback and the audiobook came out uh, we kept the price of the ebook at a dollar 99 so people read that way you might want to take advantage of it and you know That's buy two dollar cool. gifts for your friends <laughs> wow i love that and what a gift thank you so much thank you for being on the show today and sharing all of your wisdom with us thank you julie and thanks for the great questions i appreciate it oh of course Friends, if you'd like to hear from your angels and loved ones on the other side, book a one-on-one -on -one session via phone, FaceTime, or Zoom. You can also work with me one-on-one -on -one when you register to take the Angel Reiki School online to develop and use your own unique spiritual gifts. If you're just looking to be able to connect with your own personal angels, the Angel Communication online course will teach you how to hear, feel, and connect with your personal angels more clearly. Friends, if you get benefit from this podcast, please subscribe, rate us five stars, and ask a friend to listen. Don't forget to look in the show notes to see the winner of this month's free drawing. You're entered into the drawing when you write a five-star positive review and email it over to us so that we know how to contact you when you win. Now, if you have time, I want you to pause and do some energy work with me for a moment to lighten, clear, and reset your own energy. To start, I want you to take two deep breaths. Deep breath in. Deep breath out. Deep breath in. Deep breath out. Friends, as I walk you through this, I want you to use your imagination as an energy tool. Friends, your imagination isn't something that's not real. Your imagination is what every human being uses to create physical reality. How does a painter know what to paint? How does a sculptor know what to sculpt? How does a writer know what to write? 
They see it all within their mind, within the imagination, before it flows through them and is created within physical reality. Friends, I want you to start by seeing yourself surrounded by thousands of angels. These are all angels that work directly for God and they circle around you. They have this light, airy, warm, yummy presence to them. And my friends, they are simply pure love and they radiate their love from their being to yours. I want you to take a moment to just breathe deeply in and out as you see and feel the presence of all of these angels surrounding you, sending their love and light energy to you. Friends, next, I want you to see yourself surrounded by your loved ones on the other side. Your angels haven't gone anywhere. They're still right there, but now steps in your loved ones on the other side. Greet them. Welcome them. Take a moment within your imagination to give them the biggest hug and kiss. Friends, as we do this healing work together, I want you to see that every single being that is surrounding you is just surrounding you because they are connected to God and they want to help you as a soul here on earth to lift your energy, to make it lighter, to take any heaviness out of your aura, chakras, and body. In order for them to help you with this, what I want you to do is voice to them. See yourself in your imagination telling your angels, your loved ones on the other side, God energy of course is there too. Tell them what you are afraid of. I want you to be specific and explain your fears to them now. Now, friends, I want you to see your loved ones and angels on the other side comforting you, holding you, wiping away your tears. I want you to see them telling you that you're going to be okay. Your family is going to be okay. I want you to see them showing you in their way from the other side that they are there helping you every step of the way and that they will never, ever leave your side. Friends, I want you to see or feel God energy, this pure, white, radiant light pouring down from above over you. And as you feel this pure love and light, this gentle waterfall just pouring over your head, filling your body, filling your auric field to the outside of you, filling every inch of your being around you. 
I want you to feel that as this light energy comes in, the highest vibration that is as it gently pours into your being, I want you to feel how all the heaviness within you just releases. With the snap of your finger, God takes every ounce of heavy, low vibrational energy within you. And with that snap of the finger, God turns all of it into the highest vibration, love, light energy. Friends, I want you to imagine within your imagination, your DNA strand. Now, the way that spirit shows me the DNA and what it looks like is if you could imagine that double helix and that within that double helix are millions or billions of doors and windows. And those doors and windows open and close. And as they do, some serve your highest health and good some do not. What I want you to do is say this prayer with me. My friends, this energy work does not have to take a lot of time. You're going to hear me say, use the snap of your fingers because within that snap of the fingers, your intention shifts the energy within your body. So you can say it, but please believe it. Know like you know like you know within your heart that you are changing the energy, the frequency within you to be pure, complete health. So say this little prayer with me now. God, please close all the doors and windows to my DNA that don't serve my highest health. With a snap of your fingers, see those doors and windows close. And God, please open all the doors and windows to my DNA that do serve my highest health. See those doors and windows open with a snap of your fingers. What I want you to do now is see yourself healthier than ever come September of this year. Daydream, visualize about what that health looks like and feels like to you within your body come September of this year. Take a moment to do this work right now and I'll come back to you with my voice in one minute. Friends, I want you to believe like you believe like you believe that you, your family, your friends, you are protected. You are safe. You are secure. Your angels are looking out for you. God is looking out for you. Your loved ones are looking out for you. See yourself as healthier than ever come September of this year. Now I want you to pray with me for a moment for everyone else. God Please protect our nurses, doctors, and all healthcare professionals around the world. God, may you give each of them strength and protect them. God, please also protect all people who work in grocery stores, food service, or delivery. God, may you give each of them the strength and protection that they need. For all people who are suffering from COVID-19 themselves, God, may you take care of them and heal all who are able to be healed. Surround them with your divine protection. Surround them with angels and help every cell within their body to become completely 100% healthy again. God, for every person who has lost a job or had their income reduced, please clearly show them the path to healing, safety, security, Whisper to them in their hearts the direction that you would have them go. God, for every child on this planet, 
please help them to receive the attention, love, nurturing, and care that they so desperately need. God, please surround them with angels and allow them to feel the divine presence of your love and warmth. For those filled with hatred, God, we ask you to transmute that hate within their hearts into love energy, and we ask you to open up their hearts to make shifts and positive changes to help them raise their vibration. And everyone who is helping with the COVID-19 effort a response in some way, God, please be with each person who needs your strength. Clearly guide them and protect them with whatever they need at this time. Friends, finally, I want you to visualize Thanksgiving of this year. I want you to take a moment of silence to experience this daydream within your mind. See every single family member and friend and loved one there at the dinner table. See them happy, healthy. Feel the gratitude of this Thanksgiving beyond any other Thanksgiving in the past. Gratitude for being all together. Gratitude for all being healthy. Gratitude for the lessons learned. Gratitude for the relationships that grew deeper and the love that is between you all. Again, my friends, see your spirit team on the other side telling you that you are going to be okay. See them helping you. My friends, God loves you. Your spirit team loves you. I love you. Open up your heart like French doors to all of the unexpected blessings that they're trying to bring into your life right now. May you go forth with your day feeling lighter, and living in the high vibration that is God. Go forth in your day, surrounded by angels and your spirit team on the other side protecting you. Allow yourself to just be. Allow yourself to live in the high vibrational frequency that is God and carry it with you throughout your day. Friends, I have to have a disclaimer at the end. This podcast is to educate, inspire, and entertain you on your personal journey towards health and happiness. It is not intended to replace care best provided by qualified professionals, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.